So here's Paul, a beautiful example of one who stands up for preaching the gospel, whatever the circumstances may be. He's on trial for his life. He's been separated from his friends, opposed by his enemies, abandoned there in the court of law for those who bring charges against him. And yet his overwhelming concern is for one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we present the final message in our study of 2 Timothy. Paul is near the end of his life, under house arrest in Rome, and he sends this letter to Timothy, whom Paul has brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And in the closing paragraphs, he makes mention of a number of men and women whom Paul has had dealings with. Let's rejoin Pastor Carl now as he picks up on Paul's request to Timothy to bring Mark with him when he joins Paul in Rome. So Timothy, while you're on your way here, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Remember Mark? He's also called John Mark. He's the one who wrote the third gospel in the New Testament. Paul took him on the first missionary journey. It got tough, and so he ran home to Mama. The second missionary journey came. Paul said, we're not taking Mark. Barnabas said, we've got to take Mark. We're not taking him. We've got to. We're not. We've got to. And so instead of having one missionary journey, they had two. Barnabas took Mark because Barnabas was concerned with the worker. Paul took Timothy because he was concerned with the work. But because largely of Barnabas' ministry, Barnabas the encourager, he built into John Mark. And as you read in later letters, he became a good man. And here in this final letter, Paul calls him a useful servant of Christ. Verse 12. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now this man is mentioned twice over in Paul's epistles. In both Ephesians and Colossians, we read Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. He was a good brother. And now he's going to Ephesus, presumably to take the letter that Paul is writing, but also to take Timothy's place so Timothy can come here to Rome and meet Paul's needs and fellowship with him. So here are four intimate and trusted friends whom Paul misses, three of whom have been called into the Lord's work and one who ran away. And then he adds something in verse 13 that is quite revealing. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. He asked first for his cloak to keep warm because fall has come upon the city of Rome. Winter is not far away. And those stone prisons were cold places in which to live. And he uses a very technical term for the word cloak. It was used of a large sleeveless outer garment that had just a, a hole cut in the middle for your head. And it was a very expensive garment in the first century. A lot of people could not afford them. But God always takes care of his man. And here's uh, Paul. And he doesn't tell Luke to go out and buy him another one because they are expensive. But he asked Timothy to bring it with him because it was getting cold. In addition, there were certain books that Paul had in his library that he wanted Timothy to bring. But then he adds, especially the parchments, clearly a reference to the Scriptures. So here's Paul asking for three things. Timothy, you come. I want your fellowship. 
Secondly, bring the cloak because I need to keep warm. And thirdly, bring the books and especially the parchments because I want to keep occupied. And of course, here's Paul, who most of all, he yearns to see Timothy just one more time before he dies. He's already said in verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. And then he adds in verse 21, make every effort to come to me before winter. Because if Timothy has ever to see the Apostle Paul again alive, he must come soon. He must become before winter because when winter comes, navigation becomes impossible. Paul loved this brother in Christ. He already wrote in chapter 1 that he longed to see him. So on the one hand, he longed to see Christ. But on the other hand, he longed to see Timothy. Sometimes you meet these super spiritual saints who claim, oh, they never feel lonely. All they need is Jesus. They don't need anybody else. They don't need any friends. Listen, quite often human friends are God's provision to us. Paul wrote in another letter that God, God sent Titus to come and comfort me in my depression. Both the fellowship of Christ that he has spoken of in verse 7, 17, not to mention the appearing that he is longing for, was very important to Paul, but so weren't human friends. Those were not a substitute for the apostle. He obtained help from the Lord both directly and indirectly. He didn't despise the use of means that God gives, nor should we. When our spirit is lonely, we need friends. When our body is cold, we need clothes. When our mind is unoccupied, we need books, especially the scriptures. God created us with certain human needs. We are, as the writer says, but dust in God's sight. And we cannot deny our human frailty. And so Paul does not. So here's Paul separated from his friends. But beginning in verse 14, we also see that Paul has been opposed by Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, Alexander was a common name in the first century, and it appears a number of times in the New Testament. We don't know whether this is the same Alexander that's mentioned in Acts chapter 19. There's really no value in conjecturing about it. Though I think we can firmly say that this is a different Alexander than the one Paul wrote about in his first epistle. Because when he describes that first Alexander who had been shipwrecked in the faith, he describes him in terms of discipline because he's a believer, one whom he's going to deliver over to Satan that he might be disciplined, that as he wrote in 2 Corinthians, his spirit might be saved in the day of judgment. But when he speaks of this Alexander... By the Spirit of God, he uses terms of wrath and punishment, and God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Now, precisely how he did him much harm, we're not told. In either case, he says, the Lord will repay him according to his needs. Now, it's not clear in the Old English. It almost comes across like a desire or a wish in the King James. But understand, this is not a wish or a desire. Paul is not being vindictive. He recognizes, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But by the Spirit of God, he simply is stating a fact, a prediction that would come true, that God will deal with this man, that God will ultimately punish him. In fact, Paul's not concerned about what this man has done to him as he is about Timothy and especially the message. Look at verse 15. He warns Timothy, be on your guard against yourself. That's his concern for Timothy. For he, Alexander, vigorously opposed our teaching. That's his concern for the message these two men preached. He knows that this man is dangerous and he will seek to undermine Timothy in his preaching of the gospel truth. 
So here's Paul, separated from his friends, opposed by his enemies. Third, I want you to notice that Paul is unsupported in his first defense. He's unsupported at his first defense. He writes in verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. When Paul had his first defense, the preliminary investigation that the Roman government allowed a Roman citizen in which to establish their innocence, no one was there to support him. Under Roman law, as a Roman citizen, he had the right to call witnesses who had vouched for his whereabouts and for his behavior. But no one came to speak for Paul. Now, we're not told precisely what charges they made against Paul, but we know from Tacitus and Pliny and other contemporary writers of the day of the kind of charges they continually and habitually leveled against Christians. Sometimes it was a charge against atheism because Christians would not embrace all of the idols that the people of Rome worshipped, especially they would not worship the emperor whom they had been commanded to worship as a god. Or sometimes they were accused of cannibalism because they would talk about eating of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Or sometimes they were just accused of a general hatred towards the government and towards the people because they renounced the passing pleasures of sin, something that the government itself often promoted. But whatever the charge was, whatever it was that was leveled against Paul, no one stood there with him. No one at all. Now, some of his Christian friends could not because they were involved in the Lord's work. But as we learn from chapter 1, others would not because they did not want to be identified with this man who is soon to be executed. Unsupported and left all alone, this undoubtedly was Demas' sin who loved life more than doing what was right. Our Lord experienced the same thing in Gethsemane. His friends, his disciples deserted him. His enemies mocked him. And mystery of mysteries, God the Father forsook God the Son. He was totally alone that he might experience the separation that we should justly forever experience in that awful place called hell. So Paul, like Christ in Gethsemane, was deserted. And like our Lord, he prayed for the sins of those. He prayed that it might not be counted against them. But unlike Christ... And like King David, he was not deserted of the Lord. Though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord was right there with him. He just said that in verse 17. The Lord stood with me. Everybody else abandoned him, but the Lord stood with me. In fact, he strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. That's the end of the race that it might be fully accomplished, that all the Gentiles might hear what God had commissioned him to do. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. Christ's presence there at Paul's side gave him inward strength to preach to the gospel, the gospel to the Gentiles in that court that day. And the Bible says he was delivered out of the lion's mouth. Now, we know that this is not a literal lion that he is speaking of because Paul is a Roman citizen and it was forbidden of a Roman citizen to be placed in any of the Roman amphitheaters to fight lions. Some think 
because this is clearly metaphorical, that this is symbolic of Satan, who is described in the Bible like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Others think that this metaphorical reference is to Nero because of his cruel nature. I happen to think both are right because the devil was working behind Nero. But in either case, all agree that the deliverance that Paul speaks of was that his execution was stayed for a period of time. And thank God it was. Otherwise, we'd never have 2 Timothy. So here's Paul, a beautiful example of one who stands up for preaching the gospel, whatever the circumstances may be. He's on trial for his life. He's been separated from his friends, opposed by his enemies, abandoned there in the court of law for those who bring charges against him. And yet his overwhelming concern is for one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 18, as he speaks of God's sovereignty, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He knows he's about ready to be translated into heaven. And so he sends one final greeting to his dear friends. Verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila. You know them. They're that husband and wife team that helped Paul in Corinth. They were there years before in the city of Rome. And now they're there in the city of Ephesus where Timothy is helping him. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. I hope you remember him from chapter 1 of this book. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Both of these men, if you read the Acts, were in Paul's third missionary journey. And so they were dear friends both to him and to Timothy. Then he says to Timothy, make every effort to come to me before winter. And then he sends greetings to some Christians there in Rome. Three men and one lady, unknown to us, but known to the Lord. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus. And then he uses the feminine and Claudia and all the brethren. And he concludes the letter, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, these are the final words that fall from the pen of the Apostle Paul. In fact, I can see Paul because he told us in other places that there was a distinctive mark on every single letter that he wrote. Typically, he would use an amanuensis who would take down what he said. And I can see Paul saying, give me the pen. And he wrote, the Lord be with you. Grace be with you. Now, the Lord be with you, it's a prayer. And the you there is singular. The Lord be with your spirit. It's singular. He's addressing Timothy. But then he changes pronouns. Grace be with you. And he goes through a plural, recognizing that this is a public letter that will be read by everyone in the church. By the way, this is one place where the King James is very helpful with its Old English, because in Old English, we make a distinction between plural you and singular you. And we do that in this way. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. That's singular. Grace be with you all, that's plural, amen. And of course, the Bible does not record what happened on that final day, but history well documents it. They took Paul outside of the city, there to the Austin Way. They marched him up some steps. They bound his hands and his feet. They lay his head on a chopping block and took it off. Wesley said it so well, God buries his workmen, 
but he carries on his work. I love this guy. Faithful to the end. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is it that you are living for? What is the driving force behind your life? Everything that Paul lived for concerned the Lord Jesus Christ. He had given his full attention and affections to the Lord. What is it that has captivated your affections today? What is the driving force in your life? What is it that you think about in your free time thoughts when you don't have anything else to think about? Paul, when he summarized his affections, he said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. From Paul's perspective, it was just going to get better. Christ was everything to him. Now you fill in the blank for your life, as I will for mine. For me to live is, just fill in the blank. Now Paul put it into one word. For me to live is, put it in one word. You say, Pastor, I can't put it in one word. Well, put it in a phrase then. You say, well, I don't know what I would put. Well, put what is most important honestly to you this day. Not how you should answer it, but what is truthfully a reality for you. Maybe you'd put for me to live as family. If that's the case, put down family. Maybe for you to live as money. If that's what you're living for, to acquire things, then, then put that down. Maybe for me to live as pleasure, for me to live as recreation, or for me to live as for leisure, or to travel, or to golf. Or just, just put it down, whatever it may be. Or maybe for me to live as fame. What is it? What is the burning desire of your heart? What is it that drives you up? What is it that keeps you going day to day? What is it that makes you want to get up in the morning? What is the guiding ambition of your life? Now, I can tell you that if you put anything other than for me to live as Christ, then you will have to put for me to live as blank, but to die is great loss. You say, why do you say that, Pastor? Well, suppose you put down money for me to live as money. The old adage is true. How much did he leave? All of it. You can't take it with you. And where some of you are going to go, it's going to melt anyway. Listen, if you're living for things, you're living for something that is foolish and temporal and is passing away. You say, well, for me to live as family, isn't that a noble goal? Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus said, if you love family more than you love God, you can't be my disciple. If you want to put your family first, you put your family first, not by putting them first, but by putting Christ first. You say, well, for me to live is fame, notoriety. Well, if you're a Christian and you think that way, you're going to die someday and go to heaven and recognize that the only one being applauded in all of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian and you die and go to hell 100 billion years from now, when your soul goes on an endless, timeless, dateless, measureless existence, there'll be no fame whatsoever for you in hell because hell is a place of outer darkness where there's absolutely zero fellowship with anyone. But if you've been saved and your affection is upon Christ and you keep it there and you cultivate that love and you never depart from it, like Paul, you'll be able to come to the end of your life and say, I've fought the fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Let me share a letter with you. And with this, I'm finished. During World War II, a soldier in the South Pacific 
wrote his mother and he wrote these words to her. Dear mom, it's comparatively quiet where I am today, but no one knows how long it will be. Mom, if this letter reaches you, it will mean I cannot write another one. For I'm putting this letter away with my things and asking that it be sent to you. I just want to say, Mom, don't grieve for me. I know my Redeemer lives. My trust is in Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. And because He lives, I shall live too. Don't ever say of me, He's gone, but say He lives. Because, Mom, when you read this, I shall be very much alive waiting for you in the presence of Christ. Friend, one of these days will be your last day on planet Earth. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what your pedigree is, what your wealth, profession, education, status, notoriety may be. You have the same problem that all of us have, and it is a problem of sin, and only Jesus Christ can forgive it and give you new life. And Paul spent his whole life preaching that message, and he wanted Timothy to preach it. Preach the word in season and out of season. Be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Yet today we have these men who because the gospel has not been guarded, they preach a social gospel, which is not really good news at all. They preach social issues from the pulpit week after week on how we can improve man's environment. May I remind you, man was in a perfect environment when he fell. We have a government that is doing everything to try to make the environment better. And so we have a war on poverty and a war on drugs and now a war on terrorism. But what we need in America is a war on sin. And even the government doesn't know what to do. They don't know what to do with these unwanted pregnancies. They don't know what to do with this immoral nation that is out of control. They don't know what to do with this generation that doesn't even want to work. They've thrown their hands up, but I want to tell you the solution is so simple. Just start believing and obeying this book. The social gospel will never deal with the sin problem. Paul knew that only the blood of Christ can take away your sin. Paul preached the gospel exhorting men to abandon self and to embrace Christ, to forsake their own righteousness and to take that which God freely gives to those who by faith come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. People who are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. That was the message he preached. You're in one of two kingdoms today, either God's or the devil's, and there's nothing in between. The question that you must ask is which kingdom will I be in? There on that cross, our Lord bore your sin. He took all of your punishment, paid for every blot, blemish that you've ever committed. If you will call upon his name today, he will save you. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Now, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to ask you a question. I wonder how many today could say, Pastor, I know that I'm saved. There's been a time in my life when I've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to save me from the penalty of my sin. Furthermore, the Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that I am a new creation. I have a new desire for the things of God to live for Christ because He has saved me from my sin. Furthermore, I've made a public, unashamed confession of my faith. I've been baptized as a believer. And I'm a member of a New Testament local church. If you could say that, would you raise your hands? 
All right, thank you. Put them down. Some of you could not say that this morning. Some of you could not say that because you don't know if you're saved. You say, I hope I'll go to heaven. I think I'll go to heaven. I'm 99% sure I'm going. Listen, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. You've got to take God at his word. And God cannot lie. God's done it all. He's provided the way. The only thing between you and heaven is an act of faith. Believing what God said. Believe in the Lord Jesus and he'll save you. You say, I've prayed those prayers before and I don't know if God has saved me. Then he hasn't. You must come in faith. You must believe what God said. For without faith, you will never please God. God cannot lie. He's not like a man that he would ever lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And in faith today, he asks you to come to Christ. Now, some of you could not raise your hand because you don't know if you're saved. Others of you, you say, well, I've been saved, but I've never made it public, and so I couldn't raise my hand. I've never been baptized as a Christian. Oh, I've been baptized as a baby, but that's not believer's baptism. That's not Bible baptism. Or I'm not a member of a New Testament church, and you know today that there's a spiritual decision that you must make. You say, Pastor, I want to make this decision. Well, I want you to make it. More importantly, God wants you to make it, and I want to pray for you. If you know today there's a decision you need to make, maybe to be saved, maybe to be baptized, maybe to be a member of this church, then would you raise your hand right now so I can see it? Just raise it up where I can see it. All right? Anyone else? All right? Anyone else? Thank you. Father, help these who have raised their hands today to make it right with Christ. If they're not saved, help them to say today in faith, Lord Jesus, save me. Would you say that? Would you say it, mean it, and believe it? Whoever will call upon the name of Christ this moment, today, God will save. Now, Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his life. We thank you that he lived well all the way to the end. We ask you humbly today for the grace that we might not be deterred by the things of this world. Help us not to be like Demas, who served well for a long time, but in the end puttered out. Help us to run the race to the very end. When we meet our Savior, he will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Now, Father, I ask today that you'd help men and women and boys and girls to make the kinds of decisions that they need to make. I ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877 877- 787-7478 and requesting message 2TM9 Paul's Final Words As this was the last message in our series in 2 Timothy we wanted to give you one last opportunity to take advantage of our current special offer Anyone who comes on as a foundation partner today will receive the complete study of 2 Timothy as our thanks for your support Foundation partners come alongside Search the Scriptures with financial help of at least $25 a month. Won't you consider becoming a foundation partner? Thank you. Tomorrow we begin a new study in the book of Haggai. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.